0: The Menzingers, who formed in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 2006, are one of the coolest punk bands to form in the last two decades. Their 2012 record, On the Impossible Past, is a landmark album that perfectly captures the confusion and heavy emotion of being in your early 20s and still trying to figure out your life. But before all that, most of the group played in a ska band called Bob and the Saggots, because of course they did. Today we speak to Menzingers guitarist vocalist Tom May to discuss his impossible ska
1: past. Menzingers are one of those bands, kind of like Alkaline Trio, where they just have a rabid following.
0: Yeah, yeah. Didn't you see them
1: at uh, at Fest recently? I saw them at Fest. Yeah, and it was like it was in the on the big outdoor stage, Bodilly Plaza, just like a sea of people at night. Like I could see people like crowd surfing and just going bananas, finger pointing, singing along. And the funniest thing to me was I thought like the music was like kind of chill. <laughs> I mean, I'm not I I'm admittedly not super familiar with the Menzingers, other than knowing like how into it their fans are, and the fans were into it. People were going bonkers to like a very like kind of mid-tempo, not, not like super insane song. It was great.
0: Wow. That's, that's what you want out of a fan.
1: And did you know that Tom has a ska history?
0: I did not know that. We should get him on the podcast sometime. You knew it. Come <laughs> on.
1: You're the one that figured it out.
0: First question. Let's go with Bob and the Sagots. A question? <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is a statement. It sounds like Aaron. <laughs> I actually
0: do. Ha- I do have a question. I do have a question. But first, we're just establishing that you used to be in a ska band called Bob and the Sagets.
2: Yeah, for, for a long time. That's how we started. As we first started, uh, kind of touring around and regionally in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, and yeah, it was our high school band. Okay, so I have a question about Bob and the Sagots.
0: I was doing a little research online, and I found an old website archive that had uh, your booking email. So I want to see if this is really your old booking email. <laughs> Bob Sa Saget at yahoo.com
2: Bob's a Saget. Yeah, Bob's a Saget. Oh, Bob's a a Saget. Sa- oh I, I
0: was I was looking at it as like a Sassaget, but it's Bob's yeah. a Saget. Okay.
2: I think that was, the, so there was a bunch of iterations. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, we had like lost passwords or we couldn't get the full Bob and the Sagets at yahoo.com or something like that, but I do remember that email for sure. All right um is that still active no i don't think anyone has logged into that in over 10 years or 50 actually over 15 16 years now damn wow getting old
1: do you remember what the password for that email address was
2: (laughs) not a chance definitely something (laughs) really stupid yeah Yeah. wait oh my god i do remember (laughs) what what was it uh, I can't share it because it's an uh, uh, iteration of that password has kind of like filtered out throughout the years into various other <laughs> passwords that we've used. So.
0: <laughs> Amazing. All right. So we'll come back to Bob and the Saggots. Sure. Quick side tangent. I want to talk a little bit about the Menzingers and the Warriors. W- Warriors, not Warriors. Warriors toured together. I think it was kind of recently. Yeah. And uh, they had the the rancid cover "No Friend" in their set. Yeah, and
2: you were brought on stage to play guitar. I did. Yeah, I played guitar and sang backup vocals. It was so much fun because I hadn't played, uh, you know, like any type of ska live or ever played any ska in front of that many people. So it was pretty. That was a blast.
1: Could nobody in Warriors play ska guitar?
2: No, they could all play it, but it was just a fun thing to come out and do. You know, it was more fun to have you do it. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. fun. Yeah, that was uh, what was that? The summer of 2021. That's what that was. Because, I had heard that you were brought on because they all
0: thought you could really nail the ska guitar.
2: So yeah, we did talk about that, and I, I think I, I did really nail the ska guitar. Lots of, <laughs> lots of practice at the very beginning, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> ingrained. So okay, all your years of
0: Bob and the Saget's playing ska for people, I never played in front of audiences of that size. Yeah. No friend. That's that's actually a great. That's a great rancid, lesser known ska song. Yeah, old friend. Uh, Oh, old friend. Sorry, I don't know why I wrote no friend down. I must have been doing two things at once. You're
1: just thinking about yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you have to take you long to? Did you know the song already, or did you have to sit down and really rehearse it?
2: Uh, well, I knew the song from a you know like the parts and structure and all that. I just had to rehearse it, get the chords right. Yeah, you know? that whole record, uh, "Out Come the Wolves," was one, was one of the first like punk ska records I had ever heard. Someone actually gave it to me on a, a burned CD, and it was out of order. So I had known the the record for years without it being in the correct order, and then eventually bought a copy and was like, "Wait a minute, that song doesn't come next," and then realize that you know it was completely structured wrong but it yeah that 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 kind of like opened the door to play guitar and start bands and stuff like that
1: was the play order of the burned copy better to you than the play order that it's actually in
2: you know that's i i guess so actually no cuz there's like th- certain parts that flow into each other that made a lot more sense and they put a lot more time <laughs> and thought into it but <laughs> yeah
1: but you've never been nostalgic for that burned copy and like made a Spotify playlist with the correct your correct order.
2: No, I couldn't remember. This was oh, okay. It's one over twenty years ago, I guess. Now,
0: <laughs> sure. Before you discovered uh, Rancid and stuff, you were your first band was called Hoopla.
2: Yeah, that's true. We kind of opened a dictionary. It was me and my best friend Nick. He had a drum set in his garage, and his older brother played in um, you know some bands that were adjacent, like new metal adjacent, and then got really into Green Day. So we basically did everything that they did, but we had a little amp, and I got a little harmony guitar, and we went to our friend's house, and we did all of the band things that you do after you write songs. But we didn't write any songs. So We went, we you know drew logos and opened up a dictionary, flipped around, and then picked picked that out of the dictionary.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. And you um, wanted to play corn songs, but you just couldn't figure out how to do them very
2: well. It's fuzzy, but I think, it, yeah, that was basically it. We were past the past the corn phase by that point. or <laughs> it all kind of blurred in together.
1: Was it just too hard to figure out the down-tuning
2: bit? Mm, I think it was just, yeah. I mean, I couldn't play at all, so <laughs> I yeah. couldn't figure out anything, really. How long had you been playing guitar at that point? Uh, a couple of months, you know. When we, when Nick and I started to play songs in his parents' garage, was like when I started to play guitar. So I hadn't been playing guitar. I got a uh, a Fender Brea from my aunt. I I really wanted to play drums. My parents were like, "Fuck, no, you're not playing drums. That's that's loud, and they cost money." So my aunt had an old acoustic that she played in like church and shit, and she let me borrow it. And that was what I first started to learn on. And then eventually bought a. I think it was it was a Harmony, like it was a, a brand that was sold at Sears way back in the day back when you could like buy a house from Sears, you know, and like a magazine or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, I, yeah, I got that for like 40 bucks or something. And then started to get, uh, go get guitar world magazines where they had tabs in them, started to try to read those and took lessons from this, this wild ass guy in a, a basement in West Granton. I think his name was Charlie. Mm. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, would you say that you got a guitar in order to play punk rock? Did punk rock motivate you to start playing music?
2: Yeah, I don't think we really drew that many distinctions between uh, genres at the time. You know, I I didn't have like the internet or internet forums. It was like kind of burgeoning at that point. Um, So the the kind of genre lines um, weren't really defined, and certainly weren't were just becoming socially defined. So it was just like learning, you know, the punks and all this stuff. So no, I didn't start to play guitar to play punk rock at all. I just started to play guitar because I thought being loud was really cool. (laughs) (laughs) I guess if you're a kid and you're
0: listening to nineties, alternative radio, it's just like, it's just like alternative rock basically. Exactly.
2: That's great. Yeah. I even bring into that the main factor and that was radio, you know, you had a little tape uh, that you can little tape radio where you'd be able to push record and record onto a blank tape, you know? Mm -hmm. So I go down to the corner store, get a, a, a blank tape and then pick the songs that you like and just sit there and wait for them to come on and then record it. And yeah, just whatever, angrier seeming songs was always the ones that made me the <laughs> really want to push record.
1: Was there anything from back then uh, listening back to now you're like, Ooh,
2: um, you know, I guess a lot of it. Well, you, as a musician, there's, and as like, uh, you know, spending so much time in studios and stuff, there's so many eras that are defined by certain, um, the actual sounds, you know, like the chamber, sure, yeah. the, the choices or the mix. And a lot of that stuff from certain sp- specific areas does not hold up. Like even the corn recordings, you know, I was listening yeah. back not that long ago and they're not as like heavy as I thought they were. And that was actually kind of a cool element to it. It wasn't like insane production. Like, um, it happened right after that you know they, no one was using really pro tools rigs much i guess i mean i guess they were i don't know i'm talking on my ass i have no fucking clue but uh there's definitely like you know certain snare drum sounds and like especially in that new metal like walls of guitars that just goofy sounded
1: yeah that piccolo snare
2: uh the 100 it's the piccolo snare man and even joe our drummer we got one you know he did <laughs> back in the early days yeah i remember for
1: the longest time it was all about getting the thinnest snare possible
2: yeah, like, and now it's like everybody's like, no,
1: no, no, have a thick snare.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which I don't think will be dated because that's kind of been a, a constant throughout rock music.
0: The one that always gets on my nerve. I don't know if anyone else is on the same page with me is this one or not. But or a little earlier, uh, Metallica and Justice for All. The the way the bass, the kick drum sounds just sounds horrible to me. It's just a like a a thud,
2: like a cardboard, like a thin one though. It's like a cardboard paper kind of. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: it, I just it distracts me. I hear and especially when he does those fast like bass drums, it just sounds like this needless thud that's in the song.
2: Yeah, they I mean that band has all kinds of wild shit going on. The uh I just watched the documentary where they have a therapist, the like ultimate yeah. rapper guy with them, uh which was fucking fantastic. I'd I'd never seen it before. It had just been on like parties and stuff. And they, he turned the snare off for that whole record, and it sounds atrocious. And then <laughs> yeah. uh, somebody had sent me a video where he's walking around like a like a red carpet event for that record, and he's carrying the snare <laughs> and just so he could tell people how he got that good, unique sound. And I'm like, man, this <laughs> dude is... That's fucking crazy. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Not a good sound. And 100% had the same read on that therapist as being a total grifter.
2: Oh yeah. That part where he tries to give them (laughs) lyrics. So sick. (laughs) Fucking 40 grand a month. Hell yeah. I don't know what that guy's doing now.
1: There's there's one part where they bring him up and he's like sitting in the corner eating a sandwich.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, well, but and my wife pointed out right before he's eating the sandwich, he takes almost everything off of the sandwich, like methodically, and puts it on the wrapper, and then he eats oh the rest gosh. of the sandwich. It's super bizarre.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Let's go from Hoopla to Bob and the Saggots. I know there's a couple bands.
2: I don't know how you know that, but yeah, there's a couple <laughs> bands kind of uh, in between all of that that were. Do you remember any of those band names? ah man decadence decay was one
0: what did what did decadence and decay play uh
2: decadence decay it was we had had a long discussion whether it would be decadence decay or decadence and decay it ended up being decadence Mm -hmm. decay i believe uh we played like a a very dead kennedy's inspired um kind of 77 ish punk okay yeah, we had two friends uh, that came and joined us for that. That didn't last long. I think we played actually. I think we played a show because uh, it's a church by my house, and we asked them if we could use the basement uh, to have a show, and they were like, "Yeah." So we had, we threw a punk uh, a punk show with a bunch of fourteen year olds, and we did play that show actually. So was this a church basement that did shows normally, or did you? Bring the idea. No, this is just a space. Yeah. This was kind of where we were learning um from an older generation of kind of punk kids in Scranton that were all they would play at actual, you know, ticketed places. And there were a couple of bigger venues uh in and around northeastern Pennsylvania that had had shows, but the whole the the romantic notion of this whole punk thing and and that where a lot of the DIY um mindset and ethic came from was the idea that we could just do whatever we want and that we didn't need someone else to do it for us, which you know it sounds like a proselytizing almost but it was true we would just go get someone to drive us around to be like oh there's an foe what's going and ask so we'd like walk into a vfw bar and say hey we have some bands can we rent your space and we did it at like a dozen or so places. we would get kicked out and banned for most of them but we got to do that you know you'd go in they'd be like yeah well you can just do it for free and we're like okay <laughs> as like a community service to uh to to the, the you know the neighborhood but
0: when you were doing Hoopla, like you were saying, you were listening to songs on the radio. You weren't writing songs. Where did you learn about DIY and punk ethos that that gave you the idea that you could, you know, do it yourself?
2: Sure, yeah. There was a uh, a place called Cafe del Sol that threw shows. And it was a small cafe, but they had rowdy punk shows. It was near the, uh, it was basically on the campus of the University of Scranton. So it was like, you know, a Divy College kid situation. And there's a generation older than us there. And they told us about it. And they used to do it. So we kind of just had that idea. And it also, there was a, a part of playing the shows at the places that kind of just came naturally because of the, type of place that scranton was so you you know if someone every time people had weddings or big parties they would have them at church halls vfws foe that kind of place and location or you know the clubhouse of a little league and shit like that so there was all these places and spaces that already served that kind of community function so we were able to um you know ride that take advantage of that interesting yeah i mean
0: it's weird when I grew up because I grew up in the Northern California Bay Area and I was aware of the idea of DIY more than I was familiar of where it existed in the Bay Area. But when I started touring and using Book Your Own Fucking Life, I found these scenes way easier in other cities than in the Bay Area. It, took a, it was like a lot more work. So Yeah, it makes sense, especially if it's
2: concentrated. You know, Bay Area, so many great bands came out of there. There's a lot of like, I don't want to call it competition, but it's like saturated with people. You know, I have to feel like it would be kind of hard to. Yeah, and there's a lot of, and there was a lot of great uh
0: clubs and stuff too. So,
2: yeah, in fact, that scene is where we you know come to think of it, where we did learn a lot of that from getting um we would get like maximum rock and roll. Uh so you'd be able to get that at the independent music store and then there are all kinds of ads for zines and things like that and we would order different zines and uh, um kind of trying to remember the the book your own fucking life website when that came into the picture because that was huge for us. Um when we first started to book other shows but we mostly only played you know this when we say the hoopla that you mentioned that was just me and my best friend we never did anything with that that was just like uh you know uh, our seventh eighth grade kind of we played the talent show i think yeah but oh. besides that that was just um you know a very small thing and we never really did much uh regional shows until we were like 17 18 and in, in uh, bob and the sagats
0: okay so was there any other bands before we get to bob and the sagats
2: uh, so there was a band called Fast Orange, with uh, uh, uh yes. that I played in no shows, like two practices, and then I said something to, um, the bass player, and she became very upset and stormed off, and then we never had any practices again. Fast Orange, two T's, right? Yes, two T's, named after the hand soap. Um, you know, you'd find <laughs> at the mechanics.
0: Okay, it's my understanding that you saw the band and you were kind of blown away that this band was playing music that made people dance as opposed to mosh or whatever else people were doing at punk shows.
2: Yeah. or well, even just mosh, like 100%, that was a band that I knew people in the band, I knew people that knew people in the band. And I went with, uh, one of my best friends to, oh man, the, uh, CYC, I think it was called. It was like, a, a the Catholic youth center. It was a giant, well, t- at the time to me, giant, um, y- uh, recreational center, in downtown in Scranton that had like a swimming pool, bowling alley, and different rooms and I went to a battle of the bands there and I saw them play and you're 100% right and everybody was, you know, we'd watched SLC Punk and we had someone bought some like casual DVDs or not DVDs, VHSs off of eBay and we would watch all those and see how everybody was going crazy and we're like well we want to do that so I went to go see Fast Orange and then there was the moshing and stuff but then everybody started skanking and dancing and I was like this is too much fun, and it's accessible. It's uh it's not some crazy thing. Like I knew the people that were playing, so that was really kind of a, um, a realization that I could do it too. And so you joined Fast Orange, and then you ended up forming Bob
0: and the Sackets with a couple of the members that had got asked to leave before you joined, right? Yeah. So if
2: I remember correctly, two guys, uh Joe, our current drummer, and uh, my one of my best friends, Curtis, uh, who goes by Curtis Irie and plays reggae music and produces uh, reggae and ska records now. Um, in uh in Oregon in Portland he him and Joe and Curtis left the band and then me and Nick had tried to replace them or they asked us to replace them and then went to the practice at the time uh Josie and the Pussycats was either big or had just come out or something and uh uh, I don't remember her name but she's in the band And I said hey that," that she was wearing like a thing that looked like something from Josie and the Pussycats and I said that and it made her really angry and she uh stormed off and then that was the end of fast orange
1: (laughs) that's like a really benign way to end a band yeah I was
2: really confused I was like I I think maybe you know there's some other things going on but (laughs) do you know any of the uh
0: do you know Curtis do you know any of the records that he's produced or bands he's worked with
2: yeah he's worked with the slackers uh the bandaloos or Bandulus. I always always fuck that uh, pronunciation up yeah great band by the way yeah they're awesome uh good people uh, there are, some of them are escaping me right now, but yeah, those are the two two that I know. Okay, so who
0: whose idea is Bob in the Sack? It's, did you start the band or Joe? Or tell me a little about the formation of the band.
2: Sure, it's fuzzy. Uh, we just all started playing together. Um, yeah, it's kind of fuzzy the beginnings of it. But so Joe, his uh, great aunt was my grandmother's best friend, so we'd actually known each other when we were little kids, but we didn't kind of like make the connection uh, when we were teenagers until. You know, at that time or a little bit later, we started being like, "Oh my god, holy shit!" There's these like photos of us as as young kids, um, and I don't remember exactly how the conversation went because we were like, you know, fifteen or sixteen or yeah, I think I was fifteen. Uh, but we were just like, "Yeah, well, let's what's playing? We can make a band because the other one didn't work. So everybody knows how to play. We'll get together and 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 play. And that's uh, we started learning covers mm, and just writing songs. Yeah,
1: what covers were you guys learning?
2: uh we tried to learn some 311 songs i was not able to play them very well and we started to play operation ivy songs uh rancid songs we would curtis introduced me to the clash so we used to play rudy can't fail um really early on and then well, we immediately started writing a lot of uh punk songs kind of like punk Sky. we were really into like um leftover crack a lot of the uh you know, Operation Ivy, that kind of vein of Punk ska was what we w- really got us going.
1: Was there no horn section?
2: No, there was no horn section. Nah. I wasn't really a big fan of a lot of the like, real big fishes of the world. I did like uh, Less Than Jake, though. That that band was pretty fucking sick. And is pretty sick. So the band starts in 2002, so I kind of want to talk a little bit about
0: this scene in Scratton. Sure. T- 2002 to 2005, I think, is the time period of Bob and the Sagots.
2: That's it. Yeah, about that. I heard
0: that um, you guys and Lester were the two main local ska bands.
2: Yeah, you can say that. Yeah, Lester was uh, some other friends of mine um, that lived in South Granted, And we would, yeah, we played shows with them at a, so kind of the scene was centered around this skate park called Sessions Skate Park. And I went down there, heard that there was a skate park. I went down, uh, had a friend drive me. I went in, asked the guy who owned it if we can have shows there. And he was like, yeah, I'm not going to impersonate. it, But he was like, yes, yeah, so you guys can set up uh, in the half pipe and play shows. So we decided to throw a show. And at that time, it was something to do that wasn't, you know, one of the football games or some other stupid shit that we were, everyone was doing at that time in high school and uh, in middle school set up a show and like 100, 200, I don't know, kids came, something like that. And it uh, really just kind of took off and became a place that people can go and hang out and not you know, have to pay. Or it wasn't like a movie theater where it was a place where you could literally just go kind of exist. And we started to book those shows there and book other bands. So then within that, because everybody was going to the same place, everyone started to form other bands. And then every Friday... Or every Saturday we would have shows. and People would play, and then that was kind of the advent of forums and things like that. So we started talking to other bands and trading shows. We'd say, "Hey, if we book, if you book us in your town, we'll book you in our city." Um, a lot of times it didn't get reciprocated, but we brought a lot of bands to that place, Session Skate Park, to have shows. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a for what it was. It was a wild scene. I mean, it was all a bunch of like sixteen year old kids getting all fucked up. Uh, outside and then going into a a, like a weird warehouse to, to play shows so what were some of the other bands not
0: necessarily ska bands just the bands of the scene that were playing all
2: the time Man, in that scene, there was like these old, you know, Mr. Mike was some friends of mine. The, uh, we had the River City Rebels come down one time. Okay. Uh, the band Tree Fort for some reason, played a couple times. <laughs> uh, cause we used to have, uh, so we, at the same time, we would also play, the bigger shows were in Wilkesbury, which is like 20, 25 minutes away from Scranton. And, uh. They would have huge shows, you know. That's where they had Posse Numbers Fest and stuff like that. It was at um, Homebase and Cafe uh, Metropolis. So we would go and we would open up for bigger bands there. Like we opened up for the Slackers there, uh, the Pie Tasters, uh, Big D and the Kids Table was a band that came through all the time. For as far as Scott bands go, um, Leftover Crack came one time. Uh, yeah, we saw so many great shows there.
0: I read an article uh, Ben Walsh from the band Tiger Jaw.
2: Yeah, so that's uh, next. I was going to mention is Tiger's Jaw is kind of the other band from Scranton that came out, you know, same time as us and became nationally touring acts. And then there's a couple of ones in the, in the Scranton was like a, a little bit older in an indie scene. It's a heavy drinking town, too. So it, it was a lot of bars. We couldn't play at bars. We were too young. Um, and some of the people were older, but there's bands, uh, our peers like Cabinet, it became a national touring band. Uh, and in Wilkesbury, had lots of. Hardcore bands like uh, Wisdom and Chains and then, of course, Title Fight. We used to play with us um, and we're still some very, very close friends of ours. So, yeah, there's like there's a lot of bands that came out of Northeastern Pennsylvania, to be honest. But yeah, Tiger's Jaw. Uh, ben is actually a cousin of mine, like a distant cousin, which is pretty funny. Oh, uh-huh. in the article he said about Bob the Nisagas, he said
0: they were so good as far as ska goes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey i'll take it that's a, that's a that's a problem right there uh cc's what's cc's cc's so cc's was a, a legendary punk venue in scranton that we just missed so i was supposed to go with my friend's older brother to see a show there when i was probably about 15 uh, and i was in south scranton and it closed down but that was uh after lots of drama so there, there, everybody from you know um Eighty Eight Fingers, Louie, Bouncing Souls, uh, a lot of the a lot of bands from the the Berkeley scene came through, like the Lookout Records bands. Um, and then they had like an Oi show one night and a hip hop show following it. And I bet you can imagine what happened there. And there's a big fight. City was like, "Fuck this!" They from the story that I remember, uh, they hit them with a bunch of violations. They didn't want to fix it. And then the the legend is that it was burnt down by somebody, but it did catch on fire. And it never reopened again. So, no confirmation of whether it actually was
0: arson or not.
2: Uh, no, I mean, I could probably Google it and find out it's been an urban legend I've been repeating falsely for 20 <laughs> years. But I'll, I'll just let it let it stay there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Okay, so you,
0: Bob and the Sagots hits the road. You, you, you start touring because you're trading shows. You're connecting with bands from other parts of the area.
2: Uh yeah, basically we kind of just started to email, um, and so MySpace was kind of a big thing at the time. Well, I mean it wasn't kind of a big thing; it was a big thing, and we had one of those with our songs listed on it, and we would just message the shit out of all the other like you know ska bands that were our size and uh, or or bigger, and we ended up like you know getting our way onto oh uh, different. Scott festivals and there was a band called sgr from south jersey and they put us on a bunch of shows and i'm still actually friends with with joe Polito uh to this day which is and he works in the music industry it's pretty pretty wild yeah we started going around uh so have you heard of the njpp archives it's a kind of a thing that yeah. came out recently that's joe Polito did that actually he's the the guy behind nice. it yeah pretty pretty wild but yeah it was it was an excuse for us to leave and go get you know, get into trouble. So we would go <laughs> drive down to Phoenixville, actually, a lot near Philadelphia. We would play with this band called the Argyles, and uh, you know we would smoke weed in the parking. Like we we smoked lots of weed back then. So I'd smoke like a blunt in the van in the parking lot. Uh, I remember like a kid's dad knocking on the window and being like, "You guys." you need to leave you can't you can't do that i remember bringing uh one of us had a older um girlfriend at the time and she had gotten a keg for a party and then it wasn't all gone so we had taken it on the road to a show up in connecticut to play and kind of showed up there and that was also not the vibe we started to realize a lot of uh the other shows and festivals that were going on with kids our age were had a lot of parents involved that would like help them you know and our parents supported us but they weren't like book shows or help it like you know they wouldn't put they wouldn't put themselves on the line for anything and uh (laughs) it it, yeah it kind of it kind of turned into that it was just a whole lot of fun to be able to take take a saturday drive a couple hours um when you're that young and then play a show and have a blast and then and then come home it's funny that you mentioned myspace because i had that in my notes i wanted to
0: ask about your myspace page Could you tell us a little bit about what your myspace page was like
2: I remember it was political because you had it uh, to the sense that you have eight. Uh, well, it was literally, I probably posted some extremely cringy political things on it, but you had your top eight. So you would uh, strategically put the other <laughs> bands that you wanted people to know that you sounded like in your, your top eight of your friends or whatever there are in MySpace. space. Uh, I remember that. And then, you know, there's some of our artwork. Interestingly, the, we, we did have some really cool artwork and the artist who did, a bunch of it he went on to become an incredible artist and a sculptor and um he did some work for the menzingers early in our career and he you know is a card made cartoons for like uh you know the atlantic and the new yorker and, and shit like that so pretty cool
0: the era that you come from the time period myspace played a huge role
2: Absolutely. You can host a, you can, so you have this little, for anybody who actually doesn't know what it is, you have like a picture similar to, it's very similar to Facebook in that sense. And then some information about yourself. And then you can post essentially your timeline was like these little blog posts. But the main thing for MySpace and bands was there was a embedded player, which was a big technological feat at the time, at least where people can listen to your songs or listen to your records. I don't think they had integrated selling any of your stuff at that point, but it was, you know, you, you record your demos and put them up and then people can immediately listen to it, decide whether or not they you know, you want to interact.
0: And you were like you would connect with other bands really easily, right? With MySpace.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was super easy. It was super easy to find bands. It was uh really awesome to use the direct messaging feed function that it had. So yeah, I bet if I could log into the old MySpace, it would be fucking it would be wild to reread a lot of those messages. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> uh, just because of the people that have come and gone. You know, there's people that have died. like There's people that have, uh, you know, just the, the absurdity of it all. To, to think of how we have, you know, a team of people that work for us now compared to us just kind of like willy-nilly throwing everything around as it would be really yeah. a cool reminder of where it all came from.
0: You played the C.T. Ska Festival in uh, 2004 in Connecticut.
2: Yeah, if I remember that one correctly, there was a band called tip the van played. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we had, uh, that was the one that we brought the keg to. And by the end of it, we had the keg just sat in between the passenger and driver's seat. We put a little, put a little snow jacket over it, like a child's jacket that we'd found uh, (laughs) somewhere. And then just kind of drank beers and hung out. It was a lot of fun.
0: So we say a CT Scott festival, what kind of audience, what, what quantity of people would you say were there at this?
2: You know, it's funny. I, probably i'm mean, gonna just guess as 50 people maybe <laughs> maybe a 60 uh, a lot of people's the bands playing a lot of their families and friends so a lot of like uh you know like i've imagined what it's it's kind of like now very similar to a battle of the band's vibe what was the venue or if you don't know the name of it what can you describe the venue couldn't tell you the name so it was like a firehouse but a lot nicer okay so probably like uh some kind of community center was it
0: all day? I mean, was it? Was it? Did it warrant the festival name? Uh,
2: in the sense that there was like eleven bands. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Eleven <laughs> bands is a festival.
2: Yeah. Any more than for any more than four or five bands is a is a festival.
0: <laughs> okay. So Bob and the Sand gets recorded just one EP, right?
2: uh actually recorded three releases uh um, three releases yes yeah, three releases we actually just listened to them the other day we were uh, working on pre-production for our new record and we were hanging out in the kitchen um after a day in the in the studio and just bringing up old bands and listening to old bands from the time and then uh some of the guys put on the old bob and the Sagitt stuff and it was I was you know I could say this now, I was wildly surprised at the uh, the playing and the production. I thought it was going to be so much goddamn worse. Um, I mean, it's still bad. But yeah, so we, we did something called the Vatican Sessions, which was maybe three or five songs. We had won a Battle of the Bands somewhere. I don't remember where. And they the prize was recording time. So we went down to a studio in Plymouth, uh, which was inside of an old church. And we recorded uh, the th- Curtis, myself, and Joe recorded uh you know three to five song ep and curtis and i took turns playing the bass on it and then um the next thing i recorded was i remember going on the yellow pages in the phone book and looking up recording studios in scranton and i found one and drove got somebody to drive me down or i don't remember and it was inside of a junkyard uh like it right in the edge of it in this nondescript brick building. And it just had the name and like, uh, you know, the font that you'd get at Staples to put like men's room or something. Uh, it just said rec room real tiny on the door. And I remember banging on the door and talking to this guy, Cliff and Cliff was like, gave us a tour of the studio. He was super cool. And he stopped and he said, listen, boys, I got, uh, one, two rules for you. No weed, no Corona's. I mean, like, okay. So he's basically just saying, no, uh, messing around inside of the studio. And he gave us a stern talking to him and said that he can't polish a turd. He's like, whatever you bring me, I can make it sound good, but it's got to be good at the source. I can't work any magic. And we're like, <laughs> okay. So we wanted to save. So we teamed up with another band, put our money together, and decided we would record a split. And we put that split out. What's 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 the other band? Uh, Dead Radical or a, a, a power violence band. Oh, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So Scott Punk and Power Violence on the same EP?
2: Yep. Scott Punk and Power Violence on the same EP. Perfect. Yeah, it was it was fun. And uh, Jeff, <laughs> the singer of that band, uh, sang on one of the songs. And then we found another studio, I think on MySpace, actually, come to think of it, this guy, B.O.B., uh, he had a studio in the Poconos. So we drove down to the Poconos and recorded at his house. And that was a, a really cool vibe because he had a recording studio in his basement. And he was a really interesting, um, fun dude. He was a couple years older than us. And he taught us a, a bit about recording. And he let us kind of have more fun and expand a little bit and got us all, all fired up to like putting keyboards and stuff like that. So we recorded that. I think it was the 10 song EP with him.
1: Hmm.
0: Maybe it was less. Now, one of the studios was next to a dump,
2: uh, a junkyard, yeah. a junkyard, which, which, uh, which one of those uh, that was rec. I think it was called rec room studios in, uh, in Scranton. Okay. That one was uh, the, the, the middle one. I recorded a, a split with the power violence band. Interesting.
0: Nice. Yeah. Okay. So, the uh, one of your EPs is on YouTube. Do you know which one I'm talking about? No, <laughs> I do have a computer in front of me. I can check real quick. That's funny. I didn't realize it was on YouTube. I don't know the name of it, but I want to talk about the first song. So, maybe you'll know based off of that. Sure. Looks like there's a couple on here. Oh, the split's on there too. What do you know? Or at least part of it. Yeah. Okay. So, you, or th- there's like a spoken. It was a spoken part, as the music
1: <laughs> Who did this spoken part?
2: That was me doing the spoken okay. part.
0: Yeah, Amazing. Okay. All right. Sit in your favorite chair. And nice. Turn the volume up. Uh, I don't know what the next line is. Um, sounds I, like you're saying neither. pack down the Hatties. I don't know. Oh, yeah.
2: Answer. So Hatties would be like uh, the good weed, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> of course. That I mean, you know. <laughs> Listen up.
0: Third wave ska <laughs> punk with a taste of reggae straight from the heart. From the electric city, we are bombing the seconds and this is how we do
2: it. Nice, that's really, really funny, and very, very, very embarrassing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you do you recall the um, Do you recall the day that you wrote that part?
2: Uh, yeah, I just made it up, and uh, they told me to go in. We were drinking and um, you know getting stoned and all that. And we were, we had a bunch of the songs done and we were working on them. We were like, we should do an intro, a spoken word intro, like all these like other ska bands do, or like people do live. And they're like, just go in there and do it. Cause uh, I think there was, you know, there's a choking victim where they kind of do a little hype up shit in between some of the songs. And I just went in and did that and everybody was like, Oh, and so we, you know, fortunately (laughs) or unfortunately that exists now on YouTube. Now
0: you sold your EPs, uh, CDR versions of them, right? You just
2: burned them Both. yourself. So we made we burned them ourselves, and we also ordered uh, replicated CDs from. Um, oh man, I don't even remember the name of the company, but they had a minimum order of like two hundred. So we we got two hundred of those made because at the time some play, CD players didn't take CD ROMs that were burned. I don't know if you remember some car stereos. And yeah,
0: like that. I recall that. Yeah,
2: yeah. So we kicked we threw extra money to get get the the replicated versions as well.
0: But the CDR thing would be like, okay, so we got to show we need like ten copies or something like that, right? Would would it be that?
2: Yeah, more or less. We'd go. We actually we'd buy them by the spindle um, at like Best Buy or whatever. We had a friend that worked at Best Buy, so we. I'm not even going to tell you what, all of that stuff. But we. Oh uh, no, come we, on! We, <laughs> you need
1: to know about that. <laughs> that's too much, oh, that's like, the important that's stuff. Like
2: shoplifting and all kinds of scams <laughs> and stuff involved.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, receipt scams and shit like that back in the day.
1: But what's the what's the receipt scam? What's the receipt scam?
2: So I've never done this or known anyone who's done this. <laughs> no. But so but if somebody you, were going to, <laughs> if someone worked, let's say at a uh, at a box store like Walmart, right? Then there's no way that yeah. this would work now. I bet. But you could, let's say, someone you knew, somebody who ran a cash register, uh, they'd sell something, right? And then they could quickly, uh, like, basically give them a gift receipt. So you get a gift receipt. And their accounting hadn't like, caught up to the POS systems or whatever. So you can throw the gift receipt in your pocket and then you can walk into a different Walmart, pick the thing up off of the shelf, bring it to the front, <laughs> and then return it for cash. So that was like a scam people did back, back then.
1: I always wondered if that would work.
2: It, I it did. It. I'll
1: tell you. That's yeah.
2: nice. Oh. But yeah, we would burn. We'd get them by like the fifty or one hundred spindle. And uh we would try to get blank ones. Oh no, I had a little printer. Oh, I forgot about that. I bought like a laser printer <laughs> that you can put like a CD, a full white
1: uh yeah, sticker it would
2: print out, and then you use this little spindle thing and you could slap it on the CDR. So we did we did that a bunch as well.
1: I assembled so many CDR demos that way back in the day. <laughs> I had one of those little spindle things. Yep, hell I yeah. Thousands of those stickers. Probably
2: yeah, probably. Damn. It just raged through ink.
0: Yeah. Did you did you make CDRs just of your official releases or did you just kind of make customized releases?
2: Um we definitely did some where we combined the two of them together. But mostly it was just the uh, the single releases. And then, you know, if we were out or something or we had a big show coming up, we might put two releases on them uh and like you know combine the artwork or something like that
0: let's see so what happens bob and the saggats breaks up in 2005 but three three of you guys go on to start menzingers
2: yeah so we 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 split up in like the uh you know the the early summer of 2005 or the the spring of 2005 um that was my senior year of high school and then when we graduated Joe our drummer and I moved into an apartment together um in West Side just by the the Lackawanna Avenue bridge and we wanted we were keep playing we had another friend uh come and play with us and it didn't work out with him and my brother played in a band called Cosmos with uh it was actually Adam from Tiger's Jaw was in it uh-huh. And Bob from Captain we Sinking and Mike, my brother, went on to play on the Captain we Sinking's first record and, and do shows with them. And then Greg, who's in uh, Menzinger's now. And I got his number from my brother. And I remember I went on a, a, a ride up to the – Greg was from a little bit outside of Scranton, up in probably like 20 minutes, half hour outside or something like that. And we were driving up through the country up there like on a, on a ride and i uh remember i had his number so i remember calling him leaving a me- message i think it was a school of his school night for him he was still in high school um and being like hey do you want to come and jam with us and he did he came he knew our bass player eric's younger sister who's engaged to now actually pretty wild this many years later but um Actually, it's not wild at all, but then he <laughs> came and started playing, practicing with us, and then we booked a, a show or two and got it all together, and that was that was kind of that.
0: You have a song called Richard Corey that was a Bob and the Saget song, but that made the transition to the Menzingers, and it's on the first record, A Lesson in the Abuse of Information.
2: Yeah, A Lesson in the Abuse of Information Technology. So Richard Corey was uh, a poem that we had to read. Hey, Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. I forget. I forget who it was who wrote the poem. I should probably know that. But uh, and I had like a, you know, an AP English class that we had to do this project for. So I wrote that song for that project. And I wasn't sure if we recorded that with Bob and the Sagets or not. I think we did towards towards the end there. And we used that. That was like one of the first songs that we learned together. We just kept it because it hadn't changed. And I kind of wrote it was the same way that it was for me in in school. So did this song make the transition
0: because it was a, it was kind of a late period Bob and the Second song and it gave you a little bit of material to start with.
2: Yeah, and it was uh, we were pushing away from the ska uh, and that that kind of vibe and scene and stuff. Well, not scene, but the 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 vibe in our songwriting. We started to get a lot more into punk specifically. We you know when I was into punk. We were all into punk rock the whole time. We played a lot of punk songs, but that song in particular was kind of in this like folk punk direction that we really wanted to go in, and we really liked it, so we we kept it. Was there any specific like new
0: influences that you can recall in the in the early years of menzingers that kind of were, were pushing you in this different direction? Like bands that you were getting into?
2: Totally, Against Me was a, a, a huge influence at the time. There was a friend of ours went to um, uh, friend John. Uh, he passed away unfortunately, but he had went to um, juvenile detention and they had a maximum rock and roll in there. And he read an article about or an interview with Against Me. And they had a song called "I Still Love You, Julie," and he was uh, dating someone named Julie. And when he came out, he was like, "Hey, we gotta find these songs and listen to them," and became huge Against Me fans. That was uh, and that was and, and that was like towards the end of Bob and the Saggots, or and that really just started to take over. And we started to play a lot more kind of punk songs that were written on acoustic guitars. We did a lot of like acoustic guitar sing-alongs while we were having parties and things like that, and that kind of morphed its way into being louder punk songs it was kind of the first time we really saw that that uh bridge gapped i see we should also talk about the
0: song called dark side of the poon from your
1: first record. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my god
2: well it's not a first record that was a, a a demo that we had and gave it a goofy ass name okay You know, you got a bunch of 17 18 year old boys acting like fucking idiots but
0: it's got some like a uh, pretty prominent reggae elements too
2: oh for sure yeah we wrote that on a on like a digital four track and we kept bouncing things down to have the space and we had to be if i remember correctly we, we couldn't be that loud when we were making it so we were kind of were just like layering things over and over and uh, uh yeah rolled into a, a reggae song is
0: that the most ska reggae song that ever exists in the menzinger catalog?
2: um yeah i would say so yeah and saying it exists in the catalog is a stretch i guess the demo is out there but uh uh, (laughs) yeah it is we we have flirted with writing um different reggae parts and stuff in the past not really not really recently um we did used to cover uh gangsters by the specials that was a a one that was a staple at live shows for a while
0: how'd that go how would that one do at shows
2: Oh, it was great. Everybody was great, was lots of Scott fans, you know, and we were too. And we loved, uh, specials are still one of my absolute favorite bands. So, you know, I'd listened to that song constantly. It was, uh, we covered, we would cover that right into, um, Spanish bombs by the clash. Is that your favorite special song or do you have a different song you would say that's your favorite? You know, it's a tough one to to pick a favorite, but I would say it's probably, you know what is my favorite is favorite live band performance on TV. You can't, I can't fucking find it anywhere. It pops up and down on like, you know, a Vimeo link and shit, but there's a SNL performance from the eighties where the specials play gangsters and it's like the rowdiest TV performance ever. It's so sick.
0: Yeah, and it um they come out with like Tommy guns and stuff. Yeah, he starts it off, he's so like good. on top of the
2: steps, he's got a fucking Tommy gun on his shoulder, and he just <laughs> does the Bernie Rhodes nose part in the beginning. It's so sick. Yeah. Yeah. I think my favorite special song is Ghost Town, though. Just uh it was one of the first ones that got me into it, and it was just such a strange song. It's one of the only songs I could think of that has like a a part that's just a chromatic scale. There's like a real creepy part. I think it's in the second verse where um uh, the organ player just goes do 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 right down the scale, you know, right Man. down the the notes of the keyboard, not not in tune, and it just sounds so creepy and fucking cool.
0: I don't think it's my favorite special song, but um, I have a special place in my heart for "Dawning of a New Era" because yeah. when I first heard it in high school, I was listening to the like I was really captured by the lyrics because he kept talking about these different areas, like Area Six or whatever, and I didn't know what that meant, and so in my mind it was like it was like a sci-fi situation. Like you know, this, the song took place in like a science fiction world. That yeah, is... I thought the
2: same thing. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what
0: it is. I don't know. I have no idea. What is that a thing, Adam, in England area?
1: I don't know. Okay, we don't I've know. I've never
2: heard it. Yeah. And I don't want an answer either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would rather live in my mind that way.
1: you rather just live in, in your science fiction dystopia? Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Okay, so it was uh, was there any other songs that came over from Bob and the Sagets?
2: Not that I can remember. There was probably guitar lines and things like that, or bass lines, or you know, drum beats, or something like that. But there's no um, actual written songs that I know that I can remember.
0: Were you guys like, this is a new band? We're you know, like, did you cut ties with Bob and Sagots or were you still kind of like, you know, like, well, we're kind of we're kind of the same band and
2: I don't know. You know, there was an emotional uh, detachment because we had played together with the Bob, as Bob and the Sagets as four of us for a couple of years. It's kind of like, it doesn't seem like a long time now, but at that point we were only alive for 18 years. So three or four years was a a measurable section of our lives. So there was definitely like, I remember being uh, you know, a sadness and then there's the kind of like typical adolescent reversion away from it. You want to like push it away and develop a new identity, but I just don't remember it being all that serious. We don't think we really had the capacity to think of it in such a, um, a a deeper way like that. But we, yeah, you know, we, we still had the same friends. We played the same venues. We uh, still hung out. So it wasn't so much of a, a, you know, a big push away, but we definitely wanted to, to show our friends and stuff that we were a new band doing new stuff. So was the Menzingers
0: immediately more serious in terms of your aspirations? Or was that a gradual thing?
2: That's a good question. So we were more serious in terms of, I guess, the songwriting and stuff. But our aspirations in Bob and the Saggits, as much as we didn't take the world very seriously, we all of us wanted to be musicians. We wanted nothing else. So we we didn't have any plans of doing anything else. And all for, as far as we were concerned, we were going to be um, touring musicians as our job. So that's what we and we felt that way when we started the Menzingers as well. So we kind of just kept that type of seriousness going.
0: So in the, in the early Menzinger's years, uh, there was a, a lot more gang vocal style singing than there was in the later years, more traditional harmonies. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that decision, if it was informed by the way you guys write songs, or if you consciously thought about the sound of the vocals.
2: So we really liked the aspect of gang vocals. It was a, a way to build and and share like a camaraderie when we were recording but also we wanted people to sing along at shows so when you heard gang vocals on a record you sang along at that part at the shows and a lot of it developed from i had mentioned most of the music that we played was together with uh, acoustic guitars at parties and things like that where singing along just felt so good um so we brought that over into the um into the songwriting and we were just starting to learn about i mean we did harmonies and stuff in and bob and the seconds but we were you know, practicing, getting better, and uh, being more conscious about writing harmonies. Like uh, that, that title track off that first record, uh, we wrote the harmonies out on a piano and then recorded them. And that was um, kind of a, a big aha kind of moment for us a little bit. And we would do them live. But yeah, we as we got on, we just, not that gang vocals are corny or anything, but they just didn't find their place in the songs that we were writing. So we didn't uh, do it as much because it's kind of a it's also funny recording a gang vocal is not that easy everybody starts and stops the lines at different times it ends up sounding really sloppy very quickly um and we were going for a a more cohesive tighter kind of sound sure yeah
0: one of the pitchfork reviews of a, a menzinger record i can't remember which one but ian cohen pitchfork writer wrote the review and he said the menzingers are classic rock band with expired warp Tour laminates as rooted in Social Distortion and Ska as they are Springsteen and Kerouac. What do you think of that description? Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, since it's a Pitchfork review, what, rate that description. Sorry, can you repeat the last, the last half of what he said? Or what they said? As, as rooted in Social Distortion and Ska as they are in Springsteen and Kerouac.
2: Yeah, I mean, sure, we're, not, we're never huge social distortion fans, but the lineage <laughs> from social distortion that comes down to us is, uh, uh, that makes sense, you know, and we have certainly read, a, uh, listened to a lot of Bruce Springsteen growing up and have read a lot of Kerouac.
0: All right, so we're, what are we going to give that review, uh, or that's, that line, that description, <laughs> what's your rating?
2: Oh man, I don't know, uh, I'm I trying to do this thing where I do a 1 to 10, <laughs> but no 7s, so I'm going to give it a 6. A 6, all right. Yeah. Okay, so I want to hear the
0: story of the very first time you met Brendan Kelly. Um,
2: <laughs> this was that fest, y- yeah. It was. He came to the he came to the uh, merch booth. And- I was just texting with him a little, like a couple minutes ago. That's wild. Uh, he yeah, he came to the merch booth and he was. Uh, and I was the one who didn't know. Like I listened to the Lawrence Arms, but I didn't know what they look. I'd never seen them before. I think I was the the only one. But I was standing at the merch table, and he came over. Uh, and was like, yeah, man, uh, that was great. Can I get a shirt? And I was like, yeah, what size? He was like, I'm yeah, I'm, a, uh, I'm Brendan Kelly, uh, from Lawrence Arms. And I was like, holy fucking shit, this guy's a a, ma- a legend whose songs I love, and I knew that he was um a uh he helped with like A and and stuff at Red Scare Industries, which is the record label that you know we'd wanted to sign to. So he came over and was like, yeah, I'm going to you meet my friend Toby. He runs Red Scare, blah, blah, blah all this stuff. And uh, so we ended up going to the bar. Toby bought us lots of drinks. We got really drunk because it was at Fest, and we were, you know, I was like 22 or whatever. And he, uh, he was buying shots, and some of our friends were, like, sneaking in and getting them. One kid ended up having to leave in an ambulance, which was <laughs> which sucks. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that was how he'd met Brendan Kelly. And then since then, he's, he's grown over the years to become a, a close friend. You played uh, the Lawrence Arms 10-year
0: anniversary at the Metro in 2008?
2: Yeah, one of the greatest memories of my life. I think we drove straight from Philadelphia to get there the night before, uh, which is like a 13-and-a-half-hour drive. So we got there before closing time at the bar next door to Metro called uh, the Gingerman, which is now called the G-Man. And um, Toby from Red Scare lived above it. His wife Katie was the bar manager, so we got treated like royalty which was absolutely amazing and then we played the uh the tenth anniversary show which was just an enormous hometown show for one of our favorite bands in a legendary venue that is you know it's part rock club but it's it, it it was an old either burlesque theater or something like that so it has all these kind of ornate 20 like art deco almost uh carvings and things and it just has an, a, a real you know, and, and as much as the thing can have an energy, it it has it. So it was uh, us in this place playing the biggest show that we had ever played up to that date with one of our favorite bands, and getting to meet all of them and see all these cool people from all these like bands that we look up to, hanging out backstage. That was a, a really, really incredible night.
0: Cool. So, how do you remember like how much before that show you had met Brendan? That very first time was it around the same time?
2: Uh, it wasn't far from it. I don't remember the exact timeline, but, uh, it was not, not too far from. it. I think that we may have recorded a record in Chicago in between, uh, that time. So when we did record that record, Renan would come and he brought us, you know, pizza and he brought his kid over and would hang out at the studio with us. And we got to know him uh, a bit there. So did he personally invite you to play on that show? Yeah, well, we heard it. So Toby Jeg, who, uh, runs Red Scare he's like a tour manager and I think he manages the Lawrence arms. Um, So he was the one that we worked with, you know, a day to day regarding new music and what we were going to do with our career. And he got us all kinds of tours and introduced us to, to, to effects and shit like that. So he, he was the one who reached out to us about playing the show.
0: Okay. So, you, you know, you got a couple albums, 2012 on the impossible past past. This is sort of the turning point of the band.
2: Yeah, to, uh, today's the anniversary of it coming out
0: actually. So today we're recording on February 21st. This is literally the anniversary. Literally the anniversary. Oh, wow. I, I didn't I didn't even bring any champagne. <laughs> <laughs> I had some downstairs somewhere. I've seen it described as an accidental concept album. And uh I there was a uh, Hard Times. Did you ever see that Hard Times article where uh the joke is that uh Sixteen-year-old Menzinger fans are nostalgic for their twenties.
2: So good, yeah. They have a couple <laughs> jokes uh, about us, and they're all pretty, pretty damn funny. <laughs> yeah, I think an accidental concept albums is definitely a, a fair, fair assessment. That was a uh, that ended up happening. We ended up kind of without being so uh, calculated about it. Uh, not that it was like fully in our subconscious, but we didn't sit down and say, "Hey, we're going to write a concept album." But we did sit down and write the the record together. So we had a lot of the same themes and those themes were just kind of a lot of mirrored reflections of our life and what was happening at the time so uh, a lot of the songs ended up being about the same kind of characters and they kind of weaved in and out of those songs and and I've, i've read some people what they've written about the record online as far as like trying to nail down like an actual narrative of a, of a broader story. And some of them are if uh, you know, wildly impressive to, to, to say the least that someone would spend that much time thinking about our music, but also that uh, they're kind of true. Yeah. It was uh, it's really interesting how that kind of came together. Did you feel a shift, you know, at,
0: at that point in your life, maybe it was your age, or maybe it was just the amount of songs you'd written to get to that point where you felt like you were communicating something, emotionally or getting to a bigger truth
2: yeah uh yeah because we had written songs before and not that we didn't put thought into them you know enough caveats already but not not that we didn't put that much thought into them but they weren't for the same uh conscious reasons so we'd written songs before to express you know and i just speak for myself uh, what the lyrics i wrote to express the things inside i really wanted to share Uh, but a lot of it was also focused on like well, I need to write songs because I need to play shows and this is fun and this is what I want to do. This is what feels good. And then when we were uh, writing on The Impossible Past, it was our first record for Epitaph. So th- the stakes were so much, well, the opportunity was so much bigger uh, and the stakes were you know higher. We had just moved together to Philadelphia a few years before that. And we were tri- like had to take a look at-, at ourselves and think, well, what is it that we're actually doing? And what we realized what we're doing is, yeah, we're telling these stories and, people really enjoy them and it helps them explain their lives. Um, The same way that writing the songs help us explain our lives to ourselves and kind of helps create the narrative that we use to explain the world. And we thought about that um, a little bit more deeply and started to write more consciously uh, when we did that record. And yeah, like I'd mentioned a second ago, it was first for Epitaph. We, um, we were going to record in Chicago again and we, you know, had an entire, this like super cool office in Los Angeles. We, then they flew us out there. There was a guy holding a sign that had our name on it. Um, it was a a really, really Mm. wild experience for the, for the four of us. It was the first time some of us had ever been on a plane before. Um, so the, 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 stakes were big and we knew that we, if we wrote a good record that people couldn't relate to, we would get to tour more and then we could actually turn it into a career. We didn't have to work the jobs that we didn't really want to work in, uh, Back home, and we could just focus on touring, and and then focus on songwriting.
0: I really like that the record. The first line on the record is, "I've been having a horrible time pulling myself together." It's uh, it really sets the tone in a in a way. It's it just goes right for it.
2: Yeah, it was uh, uh that's a Greg song and when he brought that to practice he had had like that mo- majority written like that that whole intro was already done and he's just like hey this is what i was thinking and then said that and we were like damn <laughs> and at, at the time we were practicing in our the the basement of our row home uh, in south Philadelphia, where two of us bedrooms were in the basement two of our bedrooms were in the basement and we it you know there was so much chaos at that but it was a great time and looking back at it it's always you know rose rose tinted glasses but it was that you know, right after kind of the thick of almost the, the recession, it was really a hard time for a bunch of us and for in our relationships and with our families, and uh, just that point in our lives of not knowing if the the band's going to work or not. So yeah, kind of that 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 album definitely lives in uh, uh, the same realm of uncertainty that our, our lives were in at the time.
0: Yeah, the twenties. I think your twenties f- feel. Um, I don't know if it's really true in reality, you know, speaking from somebody in their 40s, um, but it feels at the time like decisions you make now will have will impact everything going forward
2: absolutely it's like permanent record syndrome situation without the Mm -hmm. permanent record you think that that the everything is the every decision you make is so wildly important and uh you're never going to get another chance for certain things or like it's 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 you know do or die every day uh totally i can definitely remember feeling that way and I, i don't really know many people i don't have friends in their 20s i'm 36 now uh but you know i've got cousins the same age and Talk to them, and and I've talked to people, our fans at our shows, and it, it definitely seems to be, at least for this part in America, pervasive kind of mindset with people in their twenties.
0: I remember um, like ten years ago having a conversation with somebody who was, um, you know, in their early twenties, in college, and they were telling me that they were thinking about um, taking a year off of school to go pursue music or something, and they felt really like kind of guilty about it, and really weren't sure if, if it was the right decision. And I was like, well, you have so much time just do it. Like it's oh not a, as big of a deal as you think it is. Like totally. Yeah. <laughs> that, that one year you spend, it really will have, it was not a big ha- impact at all on your future. Unless, totally. It's
2: crazy. Cause at the time, yeah. I remember the idea of not going to college, so I'd gone to college and stopped the tour. I think I stopped maybe the year before this to go to tour or a couple of years before that. But, uh, yeah, you just felt like taking a gap year, or whatever, which is you know common practice in a lot of other uh, Western countries, was so much an outrageous and unacceptable thing that it feel like you you couldn't do it. But a year is fucking nothing, man.
0: Yeah. When when did you start to feel um, or notice? What, was it an immediate thing? The record comes out and you're getting attention, or was it a very gradual thing?
2: Um, so our our actual popularity as a band has been gradual compared to some of our peers and some of our friends it's been an incredible you know one-to-one xy-axis kind of drift upwards (laughs) uh it's been comfortable we've been able to adjust to it nobody like died of a drug overdose or anything like nobody went crazy the uh that record though really launched us into it was a really good timing so we had people on like forums like punk news and the Fest and like the kind of cultural infrastructure that existed with the Fest and does exist with the Fest are kind of like almost branding, I guess, or like that gives me chills. They're like, I feel disgusting saying, but it's like, uh, you know, uh, a, a scene, I guess I could have just said we're really rooting for us. When this record came out, we were underdogs. We were, you know, the four your four cousins from Scranton that moved down to Philly and we're trying to, trying to make it as a band. And, a lot of music critics really loved that and they treated us really well we got great reviews and most importantly people really liked the record so when that happened we started to get a lot of offers for support tours so we would go and open up for play second or third or whatever for much bigger bands and that allowed us to learn how to tour uh, to learn how to run a band to learn how to uh, work together excuse me and to get along and and We started to work with, right before that, we had started to work with our manager, Tim, and our our booking agent, Phil. And yeah, so when that record came out, everything changed. It became a lot more serious. We knew, in fact, so it came out in February 21st of 2012. And 2012 was the year that we were able to tour full-time for the first time. So we were able to not have to keep the jobs that we had at home. We were able to just keep the whole thing rolling uh, since then. So it really did change a lot. We got a lot more popular after that record came out. Interesting.
0: So sometime after this, I don't remember the exact year. Uh, Jeff Rosenstock was uh, opening for
2: you. Yeah, we did a couple a couple tours with Jeff, or at least a bunch of shows with Jeff. But yeah,
0: I read it was one I was reading about where you said that you would do vocal exercises during the end of his
2: set. Yeah, so I would miss. Uh, you know, that's I still to this day I always you know miss the at least the second half of the direct support band like whatever whoever plays right before us because I got to go and warm up.
0: I uh, actually. It's weird. When you say that, I was like, "Oh, I, I thought I would see. I read this a different way, and this is why I, I was going to ask a question." The way I read it was, "Oh, you 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 did vocal exercises to Jeff's songs during the <laughs> end of his set. That's
2: interesting. Yeah, no, not not a not a bad idea. I guess it would be kind of obnoxious if anybody was standing next to me, but yeah, uh, and I mean that by me just being loud next to them. Not uh, I love Jeff and love Jeff music." <laughs> um, yeah, no, I would you know hide away and put on headphones and, <laughs> and do vocal exercises. What are your vocal exercises, by the way? Uh, so now I've, I've used a million different ones, so we go back and forth. It's funny, both Greg and I do something similar. Um, I took vocal lessons in Philadelphia. I don't currently take them now. i got to go back to it. But uh, I had a great vocal teacher named Steph Emery that teaches in Philadelphia that um, taught me so much about singing and we recorded doing vocal exercises together on like a little field recorder. And I use that on my phone, uh, recording of that to sing along to. And then that's what I do as my vocal exercises. But oftentimes if I either, you know, am not feeling it or don't have it, I do do something quick. Uh, I just Google, like literally, not Google, I'll either use uh, a YouTube playlist. That's like five minute vocal warm up, and it's the same guy. And he has like 50 million views on on this one video, but, uh, I'll use that sometimes as well. So are you, uh,
0: are you aware of, are you interested in any of the current ska bands?
2: Uh, Bites from Philadelphia and I saw them at Fest and we have a, a bunch of mutual friends and they're, they're pretty, pretty sick at Fest. They're amazing. So yeah, that and then just the ones that uh, Curtis knows, like the uh, Bandaloo's and and Irie Idea is what Curtis goes by. Interesting. Yeah. So you, was
0: that the first time you saw Cat Bite? Uh, it was. Yeah. That was uh twenty twenty two. The most recent one.
2: Yeah, the most recent one. Yeah. Oh, nice. And there's a well, couple. Yeah, interrupters are kind of uh, their modern ska band, and I will go. I still go see the Slackers um, when I can when they come through. And we have this. We really want to either take them on tour or at least play some regional shows with them because they're just such an incredible live band. And I, uh, Vic is 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 an incredible songwriter. And in fact, one of my favorite songs um, from a songwriter perspective is on his solo record called "Taking Care of Business." I just love that song so goddamn much.
1: That's a great idea for a bill on a um you guys and the slackers together.
2: Yeah, it'd be fucking sick, right? Like they play for, you know, a long time, playing incredible, um danceable, well written songs, and the instrumentation is just amazing and they're they're incredibly tight. Yeah. Oh, and we just played with the, the uh, Suicide Machines recently and they're a huge influence growing up and I uh, absolutely love mm-hmm. that band. Nice.
1: Did you see them also at, at Fest?
2: I didn't see yeah, I did see them at Fest. They we played on the same stage on the same on the same day.
1: Right. Did you, did you also catch the uh, Against All Authority set?
2: I did not, but that was a, a band. They headlined the stage that we played at the fest the first time we ever played the fest. Um, and yeah, that was a, a great band that also came through Wilkes-Barre at least, at least one time.
0: All right, so you're, uh, you're assembling a Menzinger's House show in 2023. It's a fantasy dream show. It's going to be in a house show. You can have any band that's currently existing on the bill. Who's on this bill?
2: Damn. It's in a house.
0: Yeah. It's a house show.
2: And it could be any band I want. That's this is tough, man.
0: They have to
1: still exist. Okay. So no, Um,
2: no, (laughs) well, they're all live, right? You know, (laughs) get them out there. I don't know. This is, this is a tough one. I wish I had a, 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 a like home run answer. Um, but I just immediately started thinking of the old house shows that we used to play. I would want to resurrect um, the kind of vibe from there. But that's kind of they're kind of gone. I went to a house show not too long ago, and uh, maybe like two, three. Well, it was before the pandemic, actually, so I'm full shit. But uh, it is you know, everyone, everyone there was a lot older now, so it didn't have the same remembered charm from the chaos that you could have in 2010 in Philadelphia, where. Um, you know, the housing situation that was going on and just the could, no one could afford to go to a show anyway. So we would just get a six pack and and have it there. And that was a lot of fun.
0: So this is the, so the, the, um, the house show scene in Philadelphia, 2010 or so, maybe the peak of it.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it kept going 2012, 13, 14. I'm sure there's, and I know for a fact, there's still a lot of house shows now, but I think there was kind of a unique circumstance within the city that allowed for, Um, that kind of house show scene earlier when, uh, it was, you you know, I feel like I've mentioned the recession like three fucking times. I don't, but that kind of created a a perfect storm (laughs) of, uh, you know, where everyone had to live together. So you'd had these houses that were punk houses and different areas of the city that were still derelict, um, that people owned warehouses in or rented warehouses in. And that was a whole, uh, like, you know, speakeasy ethos to the entire thing. Do you remember any legendary house shows from back in the day? Oh my God. Yeah. We, me and Greg and I played uh, with Frank Turner in the living room around the corner from where I am right now. Um, Gaslight Anthem and played a couple house shows. There was a uh, paint of black would pop up and play. Um, There's ones, you know, we had at a place called Ava house where D- our dear friend Danielle and some other people from Scranton lived. And there were shows there that were outrageous. Somebody sent me a flyer the other day. It was like, us, um, Broadway calls, Bridge and Tunnel, um, like Tiger's Jaw, not on the same bill, but you know there's shows like that happening every night somewhere in the city. So, oh, I got it for you. Sorry, I'm gonna go back. My ideal house show it would be okay. Uh, I would do all of a friends bands from Scranton. It would be us, even though I don't really want to play because I would rather be hanging out. Uh, Captain, We're Sinking, Tiger's Jaw, uh, and you know the, the the old crew. Those three that'd be that'd be what I would want. All right, we'll make sure you send our, uh, us our, the invitations.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to Indefensive Defensive Sky. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Indefensive Ska. Pick up Aaron's book, Indefensive Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of ska Punk International. This is your co host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, Leaving you by saying, Ska now more than ever.